Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Stephen Miwad, Assistant Professor of Theology at Caldwell University. And we're talking about his book, Beyond Virtue Ethics, a contemporary ethic of ancient spiritual struggle. Dr. Miwad, wonderful to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me, PJ. Very excited for our conversation. So uh, first question I generally ask is, why this book? Mm. So... Um, spiritual struggle is really something that I have sensed the West in general, and who am I to judge, but from my reading at least, or from my sense, spiritual struggle is something that the West is missing and that the West once had. And if I might say that the West was built upon, right? Uh, so this religious notion of the pursuit of the divine and that it requires struggle in the body, um, I think it's something that we've lost and we have some telling signs in society today that we are missing some of this spirituality. And so um, it's something that because of my religious background, I'm familiar with as a Coptic Orthodox Christian. Um, but, and I, and I grew up sort of with, between East and West. I mean, I was born in the West, but I, I was I, I grew up with this Eastern notion of spirituality that I kind of had to shut off at times when I was when I was engaging in the West or or I had to curtail or I had to use different language. So this book is really bridging my two worlds and uh, you know offering each side what I learned from each side from yeah. the other side. Yeah. yeah. Uh one, that's really interesting, and uh, thank you for sharing. Um, why, and it seems that you target, you kind of put virtue ethics in the crosshairs. Why virtue ethics? Yeah, I think, I think um, so ethics in general is the language of the people, if you will. Tell me why, tell me what to do and why I should do it. Um, right, it's, it's sort of the end game. And... Um, I'm trying to bring ethics back into religion because it's been divorced for a couple hundred years. <laughs> um, in my in my east uh, in my Eastern Christian background, they're not really divorced. <laughs> uh, even when I try to communicate um, with my Egyptian elders, if you will, as to what I do, the language is almost missing. Actually, almost missing in the when I try to communicate what it is that I study, because this conception of ethics apart from religion is, um, is new. And so virtue ethics is a way um, by which I think it's really helpful in doing that. It's bringing the discussion of ethics back to ancient Greek philosophy, early church philosophy, where it's more about character formation and less about 
uh, the simple assessment of actions or principles or consequences. It's more about what ought I to do to be formed well uh, rather than informed, mm. perhaps. Uh, it's just through reason alone. <laughs> so uh, I'm on a shorter production schedule than normal. So your uh, uh, episode will come out a little sooner. And I kind of love it because I just talked to Dr. John Coleman on uh, John Locke and his views on religion and morality and his uh, American students, uh, kind of disciples, if you will, uh, and their views on, on how, much, how hard they're trying to separate those two. And so I think it'll be really fun to have uh, yours following it up because um, the, the big thing, and this has come up a couple times uh, as I, I've done kind of this like pursuit, but um, a, a big frustration or like a, a constant problem that's coming up, coming up with all the Supreme Court decisions, it's just coming up in our culture a lot is, can we divorce metaphysical or ontological claims from moral reasoning? And, uh, you know, still an open question, obviously, like that's why you're writing your book, but uh, it sounds like you kind of come down on like, it, it, it's good to bring those things back. Yeah, yeah, that's precisely it. Um, so uh, actually, I, I was just teaching a, a class today on, on yes, yes. <laughs> And, and, and the set, you know, I can't really know anything in its essence. I can't know anything in its nature. And even if I were able to, I can't abstract metaphysical principles and I disagree. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, this idea that like, well, cause is just like patterns that you just like, but you don't know for sure it's going to happen again. And it's like, I, I, I see what you're trying to say, but yeah, I disagree. <laughs> um, the uh, so and just to uh, for our audience and I know like these are the kind of questions that are painful for philosophers and for theologians. But um, what is virtue ethics? You know, you talked about character formation, um, but I think that'll set up nicely for what you mean by beyond as well. Sure. So in the West, generally there are three options when you ask how do I be an ethical person religiously or not religiously, the three main options are deontology, consequentialism, or virtue ethics, just generally. So deontology is something like, tell me what the rules are, my obligations, my responsibilities, the principles. If I follow them, I'm a good person. Consequentialism is, tell me the consequences of my actions. If the consequences are good, then I should do those things. And virtue ethics is tell me what kind of person these actions turn me into. Do they turn me into a good person, moral character, my disposition, who I am? How am I changed in the process of doing this or that? If that thing changes me into a better person and towards the good life, as they would say it, then, then I ought to do it. And that is virtue ethics. Those are the three main options that are that are at our disposal. And your goal here is to go beyond virtue ethics. And I cheated. I read yeah. the end of the book. So I, I think I know where you're going with that. But what does it mean to go beyond virtue ethics? Yeah. So 
a little bit to my initial comment of the divorce between theology and ethics. The project itself of coming up with an ethical system apart from any sense of the transcendent or the divine, God in particular, is a difficult, technically impossible endeavor. So you can come up with proposals as how to be a good person. You can't defend those proposals. There's a difference, right? You can say, I'm an atheist who is a good person, or I'm an atheist who believes this ethical system is correct. But you can't necessarily defend your stances against somebody who might not be, uh, uh, against somebody who is grounded in something transcendent. And so what I mean by beyond virtue ethics is virtue is only an excellence to be pursued in and of itself because it finds itself in the character of God. And so when you pursue God, when you go beyond virtue, God is the one who is beyond virtue. So you pursue God, virtue comes as a byproduct. If you pursue virtue for the sake of virtue, it's self-effacing in many ways. You fall short of it. Uh, you become prideful. Uh, you become selfish, right? If you want it just for your own excellence, it's like this competition against yourself and against the rest of humanity. So it's the pursuit of God is how it was presented in ancient Christianity. And as a marker to tell you if you're on the right track, you get virtue. And as a byproduct virtue, uh, you acquire virtue. Um, just kind of a, a shot in the dark here. Um, is this tied in any way to the concept of theosis, of that divine participation? Yeah. So in my book, I have a little caveat as to, the, as to the terminology of theosis and deification and divinization. Yes, it is, it is that concept. The reason I don't use that language is one, it can be misunderstood. So sometimes it's understood as, as acquiring the very nature of God. That's not what's meant by the terminology. The second reason is because the West is not familiar with that terminology. Uh, they, they tend towards a union or unity with God. And as a Coptic Christian, I actually tend towards that language as well. But yes, it's a similar concept of assimilation to God, becoming like God, um, uh, uh, you know, similitude to God, growth in God. Um, so, so that's really, that was the central guiding principle for all Christians prior to the, the Reformation. It was that singular, this was the essence of Christianity. Yes, uh, it's uh, Donald Fairbairn, I don't know if you're familiar, but he wrote a book, Life in the Trinity, where he's trying to recover that for Protestants, that idea of, uh, that idea of theosis. And I have definitely run into, I love the book, really, I, I felt uh, made me a better person. We'll, we'll start with that, you know, <laughs> don't have to get into all the, uh, theological debate about it. Um, but then when I tried to talk to other Protestants about, <laughs> about like, yeah, the idea is that you become more like God, you know, I, I'm like, even though it says in like, uh, I think it's second Peter, you know, that we are partakers in the divine nature that that's the main, man, you talk to, uh, Presbyterians, Lutherans, all the idolatry stuff start, it starts coming up. And, um, so that's just really, um, it's really uh, this idea of spiritual struggle. I, I might just, I might steal some of the terminology. 
Um, <laughs> um, so talk to me, uh, you know, so we've talked about theosis a little bit. Um, talk to me about these, this spiritual struggle, especially like this embodied, you know, you, you mentioned asceticism and sacred reading. Um, what you actually first, let's start with, what do you see that's missing in the Western world that, uh, that this idea of spiritual struggle addresses? Yeah. So it's been a slow and steady deterioration. Um, I think that part of what happened in the West is that people were no longer formed. And I'm, I'm a product. I'm not separate from the West. I was born in the West. We slowly were desensitized. Our actual, I almost believe it's it's an epigenetic phenomena, phenomenon, phenomenon, uh, where, where as a, as a, as a society, we stopped engaging the spiritual practices that have worked for millennia. And that changed our very perception of the world. It changed, you know, for one, it moved us into thinking that in order to arbitrate between, um, to be arbiters of good and evil, you required your mind alone because I no longer saw the value in, for example, a prostration, bowing my, my body down. Well, that's just a, you know, it's just some random spiritual act that doesn't actually do anything because all that matters is how, but all that matters is your mind. But I think the opposite, it, it's not that we came to that realization because our minds were strong all of a sudden. It's because our bodies were desensitized from spiritual practice. And so we thought then that I no longer needed them. And we, in fact, kept going with that ideology. And so, I mean, I mean, it is a very bold thing to, to think that we can depart from spiritual practices. It is one of those common threads through all world religions. And so when you see something like that, it's, it's a huge, it's a, it's a big flag. And if you reject that, you have to have a very good reason as to why to reject that. For example, fasting. Fasting would fall under spiritual struggle. All of the world religions believe that they have spiritual experiences when they fast. How in what defense can we give that fasting doesn't work. Eat, I mean, people enjoy eating. Why would they wouldn't have, the, why the reason? Why would anybody just all of a sudden think of fast? You know, it, it's, uh, it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, it, it, eating is desirable is my point. And so for, for so many common attestations across geography and across chronology to attest to the spiritual experience, there must be something there. And so there's this, I think the virtues themselves are recovered when you, you said what's missing uh, when you're missing sp uh, spirituality. I mean, I, I think immediately to the humility that a person gains or realizes when they're fasting. My, I no longer need the material. I am no longer reliant on that which is external to me. Something internal to me is, central to who I am. And, and I think, I mean, read, read the enlightenment philosophers and postmodern philosophers, and it is the exact opposite. It is, 
that it is, it, it's not something internal to me, right? It's, it's, there's, uh, something else I need internal help, but the way I'm going to get it is not through, you know, these religious experiences. It's something else. It's through a fixing of something intellectual. Um, and I think the realization only comes when you engage in those spiritual practices. I wonder how far we've gone from that. Yeah, I even as you talk about this, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people feel fractured, right? Like there's this disconnect between their mind and their body. And that when we talk about uh, the body, for instance, and, and our minds, there is a overemphasis on quantitative measurement over qualitative measurement, right? So even when you talk about... Um, uh, I had someone on who talked about how sloth is not laziness as we think of it. It's the loss. Uh, it's someone who refuses to affirm life, to refuses to affirm what is good. So a lazy person, of course, does not do that because they just don't, won't do anything. But someone who is working 100 hours a week, if they are just going through the motions and they're not really engaging with their life, that person is actually, by the definition, like the monastic tradition, is also slothful. And I think in the same way as we talk about gluttony, there's this idea of consumption. And so the person, and I think actually uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this with um, uh, ladies who are obsessed with their food. Um, his example is like, um, you know, like spinsters in like the Victorian era, because that's like, I mean, I think our, our example would be like Instagram you know, models who are obsessed with their eating, right? We think of gluttony as like someone who is fat, which that's a whole other discussion in our culture, right? But also like we're talking about people who are obsessed with the consumption and they're measuring things like, like they're measuring, they're constantly focused on their body in ways that are unhealthy instead of seeing it as a, as a discipline and really the integration of the whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, another way, uh, uh, I mean, the gluttony of delicacy is another, is another way that, uh, you know, all these interesting eating, uh, food network shows. And, um, uh, it is this reliance on external particularities. Uh, it is this, um, and it's it's transformed in our times for sure. I mean, with the with the with the rapid technological advancements and God knows what AI holds around <laughs> the corner, um, it's um, how attached, how reliant am I on that which is external to me? And and this is not I'm not purporting uh, stoicism here, where you know. You know, I shut myself off from everything uh, and anything affecting me that is external to me. But there is a little bit of that. There is something to it. Uh, the, uh, right? I ought to be sad when a loved one departs, but I ought not to be sad to the point of, you know, stopping my life, ending, you know, uh, and uh, not living with the zeal with which I, I previously... So, so there's, you know, Christianity balances stoicism, I would say, or completes it or rectifies it. But, but yes, yeah, certainly, I, I mean, we have, we have a, a, quite an array of, of different ascetical practices we can go through that I think would be helpful um, in the West. But also, I, I want to say in the same breath, um, 
I, I'm not, what I'm not saying to do is to extract ascetical principles and, you know, I didn't write a self-help, health, self-help book because, and that's exactly what I mean by beyond virtue yes. ethics. So virtue ethics would be something like, you know, okay, uh, meditate for 10 minutes a day. This will give you uh, psychological stability. That's, that's not what I mean, because I think that's still turning to the self for answers. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so, so it's really spiritual struggle. The other portion of the, of my thesis is orientation to God. And so spiritual struggle, struggle is not good in and of itself. It is not, it ends up being good because there is so much wrong with the universe that in order to go through the darkness and the depths and end up at the good, it requires suffering and it requires struggle. But just to pursue struggle for the sake of struggle and suffering for the sake of suffering is uh, not helpful either. Uh, it, the, the idea again is spiritual struggle oriented to God. It, and so finding God in your struggles. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think we can feel the answer, but if you don't mind my asking, what is, uh, what is the benefit? <laughs> if I can, that feels like such an inadequate way to ask. What's the benefit of pursuing God though? What, what does that add that, but that going beyond? Yeah. So this, you know, this is the question of an ontology. If God doesn't exist, there is no benefit. So I disagree with the notion of live as though God exists. And I think that does a disservice to religion because, because then it's like, okay, well, actually it's better to live as though God exists with the acknowledgement that he doesn't exist. Because if we acknowledge he doesn't exist, we won't disagree, we won't have wars, we won't have turmoil, we won't have disagreements. And so live as though he exists, but acknowledge he doesn't exist. That would be better. Live, so, so why pursue God if he's real? And I always start with the premise of, okay, if God does exist, let's start there, okay? Because we all have the same evidence, we come to different conclusions. So let's start with the premise. Some people start with the premise, he does exist. Some people, he doesn't exist. If God exists, wouldn't it make sense for God to communicate himself to humanity, to di direct humanity? I think that's a logical conclusion. Some way, whether you say it's through nature, whether you say it's through revelation. Okay, well, then figure out how do you think God, again, you're, you're going with the presumption that he does exist. How do you think he is communicating? Check all of the supposed revelations, check nat naturalistic uh, religions, check um, natural religion, as Hume would put it, check Islam, right? The, the revelation to Muhammad, check, uh, uh, check the Old Testament and what it says about the Messiah to come, check the New Testament, does it verify that? Uh, is there anything weird in those revelations that doesn't jive with what you sense to be goodness, because there is this sort of experiential, reasonable portion that you have to assess it by. And so if God revealed himself, then what 
how did he reveal himself? And what does that say? I think generally, if God created humans, I logically, the meta narrative that makes most sense to me is that I am meant to be with God. Whether you call it unity with God or assimilation to God or like God, I am meant to, he fulfills me. Uh, I am made from him, if you want to say, or uh, I am made out of him. He is life, I live. He is the existent one, I exist, something like that. And so what ought I to do to make, to live with him, in him, through him, something like that. I'm trying to make this general, right, theistic language. Um, and so, back to ontology. If he exists and if he communicates himself in ways by which to express how we ought to fulfill our humanity, then it would probably be in my benefit to do those things that make my humanity flourish. So it would be a real connection to God. It's not like pursue God because you become a good person. Yeah, it depends on how you define goodness. If God is goodness, then sure. But it's not so that I can have psychological well-being or stability. It's not for financial gain. It's not so I can live peaceably. Yeah, those are all byproducts. But it's because that is by definition what fulfills my nature, what completes my nature. Again, if God exists. So so I, I, find, I find that that's... Uh, that's the hinge point. If you're willing to sort of suspend yourself for a second and jump in, if you will, um, if, you, if you use that as your starting point, of course, you can work backwards and say these are proofs for God's existence, logical proofs, but... That stuff gets really dicey really fast, a yeah. Whole, a whole other, <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> it's like a whole series. No, um... Yeah, I actually just talked about this in my in my last podcast about um, Kierkegaard and the concept of anxiety and the fact that some forms of knowledge are only possible uh, by committing yourself, right? Um, and the, those tend to be the most embodied forms of knowledge. Um, uh, probably says more than I would like about myself that I was talking to my then fian uh, no, to my girlfriend. Uh, she knew we were getting engaged. So we were walking to a, the bridge and I was like, this is just like Kierkegaard's concept of anxiety. I'm like, I have no idea what's coming next, but I'm like, I know that I will learn so much by doing this. Um, so <laughs> she still married me. Um, really ridiculous. Um, the, uh, as you're talking about, um, not being fair to religion. Um, I think on its own terms, that that is an important thing to make. Sometimes you'll have like these people who try and combine um, atheism and religion and just kind of like, well, does it really matter as long as it makes us happy? And um, at least on like from the New Testament, you know, it's like if there is no resurrection, we are of all men most miserable, you know? And you just look at that and it's like, yeah, I, I got to be honest. Like, there's a lot of things that I would rather do than, you know, you know, would I rather sleep in some Sundays? That would probably be nice, you know. Um, uh, and, or uh, another good, like, uh, I have to admit, um, I didn't like your glutton of, gluttony of delicacy uh, example. 
but that's because that's my vice, right? Like that's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's my, you know. yeah, so like, <laughs> like, like, um, that's, uh, that's how I bond with my five-year-old. We watch, uh, videos on like, uh, like, like different meat videos. They're like cooking like whole lamb and stuff. And he's like, what's that one? That one's beef. That's lamb. You know, it's like, anyways. Um, so, uh, that's, uh, that's somewhere that I probably need to be more aesthetic. Um, but, uh, so, um, sorry, I started thinking about those videos and now I'm hungry. It's my fault. Um, as you talk about, and I, I have felt this, that, uh, the metaphysical claims at least make for something, they answer why better. Right. And I think why eventually becomes important in moral discussions. Um, uh, and that's why I, I noticed you, you start talking about Nietzsche and even, you, you know, you look at like Foucault's morals and um, uh, I, at the time I kind of got it, but didn't really mean much to me. But he, he says, politics is war by other means. And of course, like if you look at his very first book, he says all of his work is uh, a quest done under the Nietzschean sun, right? This idea that, you know, you're like, if God exists and then you state what you have to say. And of course with Nietzsche, it's God is dead. Um, and so, um, how, uh, and I think this is where people will probably get tripped up. How can we communicate about moral reasoning then if our metaphysical claims are so different and metaphysical claims are so important? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> Okay, sorry. That's a tough one. Because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because the question of how do we communicate when we have different starting points, right? So that's that's the that's the American landscape right now. We're not really talking about abortion, are we? Aren't we more fundamentally talking about who the human person is? And when you ask who the human person is, aren't you more fundamentally talking about what your religious views are and what your perspective of God is. And so, I mean, I mean, my answer in a utopia would be if everyone recovers their spiritual bone, then perhaps we'd be talking more on the same playing field. For example, the ancient Greeks, they disagreed a lot and you had different schools of thought but not as much as we disagree. <laughs> so, right, because they're at least in the same playing field. They're saying, yeah, we're, for example, we're pursuing the good life. We disagree as to whether or not there even is a good life, right? Whether there is some, some sort of, whether there's something beyond us or whether there's something even inside of us that is to be fulfilled, or is it just sort of random acts of, of peaceable living and, uh, a sustainable future for future generations. How do we overcome? I, I don't know. The, my answer is I don't know. I, I would say, I know if I, if I could wave my magic wand and just have everybody engage in similar spiritual practices or just spiritual practices generally, I think we would all sort of tend towards the same metaphysical plane um it, that it's also telling that we have the spiritual but not religious movement i mean i ask any of my undergraduate not any but many of my undergraduates 
will say something like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And that's where it ends. Cause you ask something, well, tell me how you're spiritual. Well, I, and I, I, you know, I, I'm, I sound a little facetious here, but I, I respect, I respect their not wanting to get rid of that, which is spiritual. But also there has to be something there that you're engaging in order to claim some sort of spirituality. Anyway, I'm not going to get into a spiritual, but not religious <laughs> rant, but I think that there's something, there's something there about, about, you know, wanting to reclaim spirituality. And I think it logically comes in a postmodern age or whatever age we're in, um, uh, after the age of enlightenment, uh, after the age of reason, where we focus so much on t- intellectual deliberation. And I think, I think it's a common, if you've really pursued, tried to pursue truth and philosophy and you come to these answers and then you start engaging something spiritually, you're like, ah, wow. It was really different talking about them than it was practicing them. Really different. Like very different philosophizing about prayer than praying. It's just, it's not the same thing. It's something that Aristotle noticed uh, and, and most of the ancient Greeks noticed. So my short answer would be something like, if maybe we start practicing spiritual practices, authentic spiritual practices, um, and we might start seeing the world uh, more similarly. Um I actually started a thought and I realized I didn't finish it. So my apologies, but your comment about the American landscape, um, when I said, I, I, when I first read it, I didn't understand politics is war by other means. And then over the next 10 years, watching American politics, uh, progress as it did all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, that this is it. This is what we're seeing, right? It's no longer cohesive. It's splintered, as you said, um, uh, another thing that I've seen the rise of as you talk about this kind of spiritual but not religious, um, you know, you're talking about that we can't agree uh, that there is a good life. Another thing is that we can't even agree that life is good. And something I'd never heard, um, yeah, and I'm not like, you know, maybe this is what old people say. I'm not that old. But I, I, I don't remember ever hearing anyone talk this way. And now all the time online, I see people saying things like, I didn't ask to be here. Right. And so that they disengage from the public sphere or they disengage from other people and they even disengage from their life because they're like, I was forced to be born. Right. And what's interesting to me, and and I did not get a chance to go through all the ascetic practices that you have, but that's a direct attack on gratitude. Right. Life is not seen as a gift. It's seen as this thing. It's like this unwanted obligation. Um, so I don't know, uh, what are some of the other aesthetics, uh, I'm sure gratitude fits in, uh, some of those other, uh, spiritual exercises, but what are some of the other spiritual exercises that you, um, uh, cover in your book? Let me first say that's a very sad statement and, you know, it, it breaks my heart that, that, that nihilism that life is meaningless. And, and I, I wouldn't even say, you know, I hear it sometimes from my students. 
it's not something where it's like, oh, well, you ought to be more grateful. You ought to practice the virtue of gratitude. It's like, well, we failed as a society to, to imbue life with meaning and purpose. And I think that's, that's what I mean by pursue God. Because it, it's not meaningful to get your dream job. It's not meaningful to get your dream house, right? It's, it's to get your, your accolades and your degrees. That's the most telling sign for me that, that we're created for unity with God. Why God? Because he fulfills human nature. How do I know he fulfills human nature? Because nothing else fulfills me. It is mind boggling. How can I not just, you know, constantly be filling myself with certain drugs that will constantly keep me on a high? Or how is it that if I had, you know, a billion dollars that I still wouldn't find perpetual happiness? It's, it's illogical. And so, and so I, part of my drive for doing all of this is because I, I feel the struggle, especially of my students. It's, they're left with few options. You're left with so much gratification and yet so little fulfillment. Um, so yeah, gratitude certainly, but gratitude presumes a, a receiver of the gratitude. <laughs> Um, the, uh, the, the, the ones that I engage in, in my book, uh, the two that I primarily engage are asceticism, which is the discipline of the body or the nourishment of the spirit. It's pretty much don't let your body get in the way of the upward calling of your soul, or a better way of putting it is use your body in a way that lifts up your soul. So don't be weighed down by the pleasure of the body. St. Gregory of Nyssa would say something like, your, your soul is just flying. It just wants to fly and soar to the heights of goodness. The only thing that'll weigh it down is your attachment to fleshly desires. So that's the idea behind, behind the asceticism there. So I call it spiritual struggle applied to the body because I think spiritual struggle can be applied to anything. Spiritual struggle applied to friendship, spiritual struggle applied to the body, spiritual struggle applied to reading. And that's the second one that I have in my, in my book, sacred reading. So um, again, the, the enlightenment project of reading scripture, the postmodern project of reading scripture as a, a historical document or through the historical critical uh, method would be something like, let me see what my mind can get out of the text. Let me see, can I get to the historical reality behind the text? Um, can I verify the facts of the Bible? Go ahead and do that. And I think you should do that to a certain extent, right? There needs to be this rationality. And yet, do it and prove everything correct. You're still missing something huge. You still haven't even begun to tap into a sacred text. Because the sacred texts are meant to be embodied they're meant to be transformative. And so it's, it's this sort of jumping in um, the, the early church gave priority of interpretation to those who embodied the text, for example. And so 
to escape, I guess, perhaps this nihilism, it requires to engage with a, some level of suspension of our skeptical lenses that it's, it's difficult for me to do. It's difficult for, I presume, for most of us to do it. Um, and, and my students would always respond to that and say, well, where do you begin? Yeah. Right. Because part of the issue is that, well, you're talking something, some 1500 religions is what, is what some estimations give. And how do you know where to begin? Well, you know where to begin, right? Begin with your mind, begin with your experience, begin with reading, uh, and, and, and you get somewhere, but, um, there's a lot more, there's this message of, you know, if you, if you just, uh, try hard enough, if you just work hard enough, if you just, uh, you know, pursue your jobs hard enough, you'll get to somewhere meaningful and, I have not found that to be true. And I'm, I'm saying this as a theology professor. My <laughs> job itself is supposed to be meaningful, right? So, so I'm supposed to be teaching people about God. Even the profession itself does not fulfill me. Yeah, it's nice. Students would tell me they learned, you know, they're changed. But even, okay, someone changed last year. Am I still fulfilled by that? Maybe I think about it time to time and it keeps me going, but it's not this permanent fulfillment. And so I'd use that as ammo to, to start your pursuit of the highest values and the highest forms of meaning and purpose. Yeah. I, um, uh, and a lot of what you're saying dovetails with a lot of my own research. So I apologize for the constant, um, it's just, it's really fascinating to me uh, as I'm going through this. Um, you, know, you look at uh, Descartes and uh, in many ways, the start of like modern philosophy, um, you know, uh, obviously people are going to disagree about it, its philosophy, but uh, a common, common start for uh, early modern philosophy. And a lot of it is the Cartesian method. This idea that if you break things down into little bits, understand the little bits, you can build it back up. And one of the early uh, critiques of Descartes was Jean-Baptiste Vico and his uh, critique. And I have felt this, especially I homeschool my kids. So <laughs> he's like, that doesn't work for kids. And I was like, it's, he's right. Like if you try and teach your kids from the smallest and build it up to the biggest, um, they will get lost, right? They aren't able to collate it. And what's missing, um, even as you talk about, there's knowledge and then there's wisdom. And it's really this embodiment. Uh, uh, it's uh, what I think in, in Kantian terms, it's a, it's a faculty, right? In the way that he has like, you have good judgment. It's something you have to develop. And so in the same way that like, if you feed your kids TV tray dinners, they're not, like, not going to be able to become chefs until they taste good food because they have no way to judge what is true and what is right. And so even as you're talking about like when, when, some, when uh, you have students who are in college in a lot of ways, I wouldn't say completely, they're just going to have to start over, but it, it's too late, right? Like a lot of times the reason they feel adrift is because they have not been given some kind of grounding at all. And so you can create new grounding 
but you have to have some level of competency in judgment to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. So, so, uh, you know, I experience this sometimes when I have my students who, by the way, a lot of my courses are mandatory. <laughs> courses. Oh, the joy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, so when, when I have students just jump into scripture, mm. for example, it's like the, the competence isn't there. Right. And I don't, I don't blame them, but I, you know, the Christian in me, I don't, I don't like phrasing it like that. I'm a Christian. And, and so I, I just, I trust God who, whoever is breathing has hope <laughs> that, you know, if, yeah, if, if you ask me logically, do they, are they off to, do they not have the competence? Yeah, they don't. Uh, no, they don't. And, and are they, did they get off to a bad start? Would it have been better if they were brought up a different way? Would it have been, you know, even if they were just reading the ancients, would they be more acquainted? If they were, you know, atheists, but, but spiritual, but not religious, would it be more helpful? Yeah, you're right. So, so some sort of grounding and footing, but insofar, insofar as a person is a living, breathing uh, human being made in the image and likeness of God, I, I believe in the goodness and the grace of God. And, and um, I, never, I never underestimate, you know, what, how God can work. Um, but yeah, if you're asking me just from a logical perspective, it's just different playing fields. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes tragedy to, to turn people, um, or can just take some sort of, you know, extreme apathy or, uh, experience of the, the nihilism or emptiness of, uh, of worldly pursuits. But um, no one is beyond. No one is beyond the redemption. If I'm not beyond the redemption, no one is beyond the redemption. I appreciate you saying that, and I hope that didn't. That wasn't my intention for it to come across that way. <laughs> I, 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 this idea that in order to first learn, you have to accept some authority. I think is a better way to say it than than to say. I'm not saying. <laughs> like once you're in college, you're expected to like discern things yourself, and if you've never accepted any kind of authority, it's hard to reach a level of competency, right? Like you have to accept something what uh, Kant would call the exemplar. Um, I do feel like, <laughs> I think I, I may have misspoken that came out wrong. So I apologize if that came, I, I would not want to say some people are just lost causes. That is not my goal here. Um, so uh, thank you for um, really a, a beautiful way uh, of talking about um, how everyone, everyone has that chance, that, uh, that chance at redemption. And that's really like the value of, of these kind of, this spiritual struggle, right? Um, when you talk about sacred reading, what, how does that help people um, in this spiritual struggle? Mm -hmm. So there's different levels of reading a text. Um, you can read a text just for simple moral extraction. Uh, oh, the text says, you know, um, help some, uh, help elderly ladies cross the street. Okay. Check mark, right. Help, um, help the poor and the sick and the widowed check mark. And so you extract moral principles from it. That's a good start. 
but that's not really how sacred texts are written. It's not how scripture is written. Um, there's other levels. It's unpacking what the text is really saying. And there's multiple levels that don't necessarily contradict each other. So something like, uh, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. Uh, they eat of the fruit, they don't die. The text is saying something a little deeper than that. It's not a typo. Um, you, uh, you're, you eat of the fruit, you're kicked out of the garden. Aha. Okay, so kick, being kicked out of the garden is death. Why, why is it death? Well, okay, so they did eat of, the, of a fruit. The literal is taken. They were banished from a garden. That's also accepted. They were separated from God. Ah, the place of the presence of God. And then you start to trace that in scripture. So th that's another layer. Uh, that's another means by which to read scripture. Still deeper. You read and you embody. And you struggle with it. And oh, that's not right. Uh, you know, he who is, uh, you know, when someone enters a, a room, take the lower position, not the higher position. Uh, but I walk into a room and it's like I'm, I'm self-conscious and, you know, I don't want to appear weak or something. So, well, let's, let's embody the text, see where it leads. Why is it that you feel self-conscious or uh, that you need to exalt yourself a little bit? What is it in you that's not fulfilled? And you take that home and you reflect on it. The next time you walk into a room, uh, perhaps you're ready to give, not to receive. You're ready to give a word or to give a smile. And that gives you confidence, but you're not seeking confidence. You're seeking, you know, fulfilling the word. And so there's this means by which I embody and the more I embody, ah, okay, now I get what the text is saying. So does this open up more texts to me? And that's why the privilege of interpretation is given to those who embody. Um, because your very spiritual senses are transformed. That's what we're, that's what I'm missing. That's what we're missing. It's, and that's why I, you know, when I won't go into a tangent on like anachronistic readings of, of the early church fathers. Well, let's first enter into their spiritual um, milieu, if you will. And, and then we can understand what they mean by this. Um, that's why I love the ancient writers so much is because first and foremost, how do I become transformed? And so you see something as simple as, as reading scripture, you can spend the rest of your life trying to uncover whether or not, you know, these artifacts are really Noah's Ark's uh, from, no, from Noah's Ark or spend your entire time, you know, what, what, you know, what was normative in, uh, you know, the understanding of gender in, in scripture. And it's helpful for our time, but, but I, I caution myself as a scholar, you can get really bogged down with the intellectual and forget that there, that the whole point the whole point of try fighting through the academic is for the spiritual or, or that the strongest thing you can pursue is perhaps the marriage, the remarriage of both. And it, the early church, read origin. I mean, he was not, he was not scared of either spiritual formation or intellectual rigor. And I think that's, that's where, that's where truth lies, at least the truth that's accessible to us. I just finished his on first principles. So uh, definite 
I, I will second that plug. He is a phenomenal yes. read. I was surprised. I thought it was original with Augustine, but I think that's probably a common misconception. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, Augustine talks about the Trinity as like the light and the brightness. And that actually is in the, at the end of Origins book. Uh, and I did not realize that that was, I, I don't know if it was original to him, but it's definitely, obviously he's not talking about the Trinity per se, but he is talking about the relationship between the father and the son. Um, and actually it was in, uh, he's talking about theosis that our eyes participate in the light, like, um, the brightness that is Jesus. We participate like eyes participate in light. Um, yeah, just from a historical perspective, just as historically, at least, even if people reject Pauline theology, there is no Christianity without St. Paul. Similarly, there is no Christianity without origin, just because historically everyone was influenced yes. by him. So you can, you can reject his ideas, but you, we're still impacted by yeah. his legacy. Yeah. Um, I wrote something down that, um, and I can't remember, I think it was the greatest salesman, which is not that great of a book. I'll be honest, but for 12 year old me, it was, it was powerful. Um, because I just felt this disconnect between my mind and my body. And I know in our culture action, we know that action follows thought but something that's missing our co- in our culture is that thought also follows action. And so as you talk about embodying, um, you've already referenced it a couple times, but just, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, but if you could talk a little bit about what does it really mean to embody these things and what is uh, the, the goal and what is the, the use of embodying spiritual struggle? Yeah. Um... I think there's a, there's a project. I don't know if it's already out. Uh, I think it's Paul Gavrulik and Sarah Coakley. Uh, the spiritual senses, the development of the spiritual senses in the early church fathers. I only note this because when I was doing my doctoral studies, it was like an aha moment, but it was so out of reach. It was like, th- this is it. The spiritual senses. What did the early church fathers mean by spiritual senses? We, we don't we don't have a language for it. I mean, it sort of makes sense to us, right? We have our corporeal senses, we have our visceral senses, but something is transformed. And you know, when you read, there's a big difference between just reading like an intellectual work and a spiritual work. When you read some of the spiritual works of the mystics or however you want to understand them, they say sometimes they say things like they'll start explaining and then they'll say, uh, but when you experience it, you'll know what I mean. Right. It's, it's like uh, words fall short. St. Paul says it a little bit. I mean, he's taken up to a, to a higher heaven and he can't quite articulate it. But the mystics aren't so far. They simply have experiences of God that they just can't quite articulate. And I think a simple way of expressing it is something like uh, praying or meditating and sensing the peace of God, right? That's a very fundamental way. Well, tell me about this peace. Um, I wasn't perturbed. Okay, well, I wasn't perturbed when I was eating my pizza either. You see? So someone, so I, I, I can describe it to you. I can tell you I was happy. Well, I was happy when I was doing a lot of things. When I was watching TV, I was happy. And so words fall short. And that's why this embodiment or this jumping into spiritual struggle starts to change the way we perceive the world. Um, yeah. And we could talk about it, but it's all about doing that. That's, that's the paradox here. Uh, 
I, I, I'm mildly lactose intolerant, so the pizza, it would be perturbing. But um, the, uh, yeah, even as you talk here, I mean, the, the chafing that even your, your students have against the, this idea of like, I just have to do what they say is the same we feel as children when talking to parents about things like, um, you'll understand when you're older, right? Like how annoying was that phrase? And then you, you're older and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't know how else you'd explain it, right? Like there are some things that just have to be experienced. Um, uh, let me say thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, if you could leave one thing for our audience to meditate on this week, um, what would you leave for them? Part of life is struggling and suffering. Life becomes all the more meaningful when that struggle and that suffering, which you're going to endure anyway, is oriented towards the ultimate being. Yeah, it's a great and beautiful summary. Uh, Dr. Miwad, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.